Let me go ahead and say happy Sabbath to everyone. Very, very grateful to see you all, and I'm thankful that we are here in health and uh, in safety, and most importantly, in the Lord. And I'm grateful that God has a very special message for us, as I have really been prayerfully thinking about what should be the focus, what should be the emphasis for this year, uh, you know, and if there's one thing that I really believe as a church is we must be relevant. You know, I, I often like to ask a church, if God forbid the church blew up into ashes, how many people in your community would even miss you? You know, I always, I always like to challenge the church to think about that because we were created for more than just, you know, having sweet fellowship amongst ourselves. That's a privilege. But we were created for a way higher purpose than that. We were created to go. And we were created to go ye therefore and to teach all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded us. And he promised, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end. That is a vision we must never lose. Evangelism is literally the life of the church. If you ever want to identify a dead church, find a church that is not winning souls. That is a dead church, no matter how lively they appear. That is a dead church. And so what we don't want to be here at Open Doors, we don't want to be a dead church. We want to be a very living one. And so as a result of that, this year and every day of our lives, it's not just 2022. I hear people say things like, you know, this is the year of evangelism. And it's not the year of evangelism. It's the lifestyle of evangelism. Evangelism is a lifestyle. It's something you do when you're at your job. I've seen more people come to Jesus sometimes just from work. My, my office, when I used to work in corporate, my office was my sanctuary. It was my mission field. And I went there to minister to my coworkers. And I've seen many people come to Jesus as a result of that. And so there's no such thing as, you know, ministry is only something we do on a weekend on a special campaign. It's your lifestyle. That's the way it should be, at least. And there's a good old saying that says, preach the word and only use words if necessary. You ever thought about that? <laughs> preach the word. Only use words if necessary. What that means is that yours and my lifestyle, the way we live, was supposed to be a witness. First and foremost, to the members of our homes and certainly to everyone without. And so as we go forward in our time together, I'm going to be giving a, especially a very, very strong emphasis on the three angels messages and health reform. Because I believe with all of my heart, with all of my heart, I'm not lying to you. I, I am not hypothesizing with you. This is not something that I'm thinking in my head or read from just simply a bunch of books. I'm talking about something I've been doing for over 15 years. I have seen the power of health reform connected with the third angel. My wife and I have seen Muslims that would convert over and become Christians as a result of health reform in the third angel. We have seen atheists. We have seen so much. My son Jared will tell you how we had a Muslim family come to our home, our little country retreat in Georgia. And we fed them and treated them like kings and queens. All of my children were younger then, and they, they taught their children scripture songs, and the father said it was okay. My wife, taught the other, my wife taught the wife and mother how to cook plant-based food and make it absolutely tasty and healthy at the same time. 
I took the father with me down a trail and we would just simply talk about God and his righteousness through nature. And it was just such a blessing watching all of how this beautiful teaching can impact hearts in a very real and practical way. And I believe that the world, while it needs to hear the gospel, there's an entering wedge that must be used. That allows us and enables us to get to the hearts of the people. So like never before, I believe with all of my heart that the leading that God wants to do with Open Door is he wants to get us to a precious place that we can reach our community with the principles of health reform, medical missionary work, as God ordained it, combined with the blessed herald of the first, second, and third angel's message. And so today, we're just going to study a little bit about that. Now, this will be a continued theme, so the next time I come up to preach, you'll hear more about it. But I believe that God wants to equip us, first and foremost, for our own homes to be blessed, but then also we can be instruments in God's hands to bless others. And as we can clearly see, sickness and disease has no respect of persons. And so this is the, this is the message of the hour. But I want us to see how it was all along tied into the last gospel message to be given to a dying world and in many cases, unfortunately, a dying church. And so as we prepare our hearts to receive the word, I'm going to go to my knees and I'd like to invite you to kneel with me if you are able to. If you cannot kneel, just bow your heads reverently where you are. Let us all pray together. Our loving Father, we are very grateful. We are thankful, Father, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so, Lord, I pray that you might encourage us, teach us, grant us wisdom that exceeds our years, and truly open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things out of thy words. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. I want us to go to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to remind us of something about the gospel. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I just want to remind us about something about the gospel. It was the truth all along, but sometimes we, as God's people, we can forget these things. And so often, like in the days of old, in the days of Israel, you know, God would remind his people about things they already heard, things they already knew, things they already had access to, and he would remind them. And the, truly the Bible, in fact, the book of Deuteronomy in the world of theology, the book of Deuteronomy is often called the book of repeats. In other words, God is just simply repeating what he was saying in Numbers and in Leviticus and in Exodus and in Genesis. And so God often finds himself having to repeat himself. And this is a principle about the gospel that God wants repeated. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you're there, please let me know by saying amen. All right. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it was right there in uh, verse 5. Paul makes a powerful statement here. He says, for our gospel came not unto you in what? In word only, but also in what? But also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know, what manner of men we were among you for your sake. In this verse, Paul is indicating that the gospel was never supposed to be limited to words only. And that's why I told you, preach the word, use words if necessary. In other words, the gospel in God's mind was always supposed to be something that impacts us so strongly that it actually changes us. It makes us different people. It makes us react and act differently than what typically you would see around you. And this was always God's mind. 
And so because of this fact, when we look at the three angels messages in Revelation 14, it is not enough to say, do you know the three angels messages? What's really the question is, are you experiencing the three angels messages? That's the question, because the gospel was not just to be preached. It was to be experienced. It was to be demonstrated. And that's what Paul was indicating. So now I want us to go to Revelation 14. We're going to review the message and then we're going to talk about it. So let's go to Revelation 14 and we're going to review the message and then we're going to talk about it. In Revelation, the 14th chapter, we are going to go through quite a few verses. Forgive me, I'm just grabbing my clicker. We're going to go through quite a few verses and you're going to see a lot. And I want us to make sure that we, you know, kind of jot it down. So this is definitely a pen, paper, note taking type of message, kind of preaching, teaching. So just stick with me on it. When we go to Revelation 14, we're considering verses six through 12. This is where we find the three angels messages. It starts by simply saying, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, what? Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Verse 8 says, and there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made how many nations? She made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Verse nine, it says, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Praise God for verse 12. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And so we find that this is what makes up the three angels messages. Now, let's assume something. If we receive intellectually as well as practically these three messages, the Bible prophesies that as we progress further in the future, getting closer to the second coming of Christ, there will be a reality amongst the people of God that we need to accept. We need to be okay with it. It's found in verse 13. It says in verse 13 of Revelation 14, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, write, Blessed are the who? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. This is an indication that there will be martyrdom. There will be those who believe these words, proclaim these words, stood for these words, and some of them might die from, you know, natural causes or what have you, disease, etc. but some will also die for standing for the truth. It's a reality. And the reason we know this to be so is because right after verse 13, what does it say in verses 14 and 15? It says in verses 14 and 15, and I looked, and behold, a white cloud and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Verse 15. 
And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap for the what? The harvest of the earth is ripe already. So right after the three angels' messages are proclaimed, there will be some who will die for their faith. But after that, the Bible promises harvest time will come. What does harvest time represent? Go to Matthew 13. As I was teaching in Sabbath school today amongst my class, I was showing them that scripture is the key that unlocks scripture. For several weeks, I'm going to be spending time with that Sabbath school class and we're going over with those precious youth how to study the Bible. And we started our class today on how to study the Bible. We were showing them this is how you go through the text. This is how you understand verses, etc. And it was very enlightening for those of us who were there. Here it is that in Matthew 13, just trying to understand this thing called harvest time, we will find that the Bible interprets itself. What does harvest time represent when we're dealing with end time events, when we're getting into the symbolism, we're not dealing with actual agriculture, but we're talking about the spiritual context of agriculture. It's in Matthew 13 and verse 38. What does harvest time represent? It says the field. This was the parable of the wheat and the tares. And now Jesus is decoding the symbols. And now he's telling the truth of what those symbols represented. He says in verse 38, the field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. Verse 39, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. And then he says the harvest is what? The harvest is the end of the age or the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. And so when you saw that picture in Revelation 14, where John the Revelator sees three angels going, and they're giving the message. Some have died in that faith or for that faith. The next thing that happens is harvest time comes. What does harvest time represent? The end of the world. That means that the three angels messages is the last gospel message to be preached before Jesus comes. I always help people understand that. Brother Lemon, what church should I go to? What church should I be a part of? My first response is, are they teaching the three angels' messages? Nope, they're not teaching that. I've never even heard of it. Well, one thing I can assure you, that's the, that might be a church filled with great people, but that's not the church that can prepare the world to usher in the Savior. That's not going to be the church. Because God, before he does his climactic events, God always puts a message out first. And God is making it very clear that I have a message in the last days to be given to the people. It is none other than the first. It is none other than the second and the third angel's message. So we know for sure that if we are hearing these messages, we're in a great place. So I want you to watch this, because when we think about this, you got three angels. They all have emphasis. Now, I will, I'm actually, there's a lot going on this year. There's going to be a one-month gospel medical missionary training. That's going to be later on, possibly October of uh, this year. And these things are going to be designed for those who really, really want to get trained at a higher level on how to do gospel medical missionary work. In that training, we're going to go through in-depth on a lot of things. It's kind of like a small theology school, if you will, as well as a health class. But even now at our church, we want to make this a very educational environment. We want to make this a place where we really understand what we believe. There's a precious little book called Evangelism. 
And in that book, Evangelism, page 363, going on to 364, it says very clearly, in place of so much sermonizing, the people of God should come together and study text by text to know what we believe. This is the time that we're living in right now, because we're going to sooner or later come up before the world's greatest minds and the world's greatest men. And they're going to inquire of us, why do you believe what you believe? And we are told in Evangelism, page 69, that it says, and if it is possible, they will pick to pieces what we believe. So you can't have shallow understanding. You have to know what you believe and you have to really know it. Not because you heard it well. I remember I was teaching a class in Southern California some years ago. And I remember that I asked a tough question. It's a question typically the congregation would not answer well. And I remember that I asked that question. I said, what does this mean? And then a person raised their hand and I was like, yes. And the person said, such and such and such. And they said it with like authority. And they were right. And my heart rejoiced. I was so happy because usually when I ask these questions, I get wrong answers. But this, this woman, she gave the right answer. And I was like, praise God. So I was rejoicing so much that she gave the right answer, though that be rare. And so I asked her, I said, sister, Please share with the congregation how you knew that. And then all of a sudden, her head went down. And I was like, don't be ashamed. I said, you have the right answer. Tell the people how you found it. And then her response was, I was listening to one of your sermons. <laughs> ah, I said, all right, I understand. This is all right. I said, don't worry. You'll know it without my sermons or anybody else's. Sometimes we still forget the difference between being a parrot and a person. A parrot knows how to hear and repeat what it heard, but a parrot has no understanding. Isn't that right? A parrot knows how to repeat what it heard, but it has no understanding of what it's saying. But a person has the privilege of hearing, reading, and also understanding. And God says in Proverbs 4 and verse 7, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. And that's what you want. You don't just want to know how to give a right answer. You want to make sure you understand the answer that you gave. One of the great teachers that I've had in my life by the name of Eugene Pruitt, it was my dear brother, Eugene, that he made a statement that changed my life forever. Eugene said, Dwayne, it is not so much. And you'll see when I start going through how to study the Bible with our church, because we're going to be doing training for the members of the church. Eugene said, Dwayne, it is not so much that you come to a right conclusion. He said, but the real question is, how did you get there? And I remember I sat down and thought about that. I was like, that's deep. In other words, sometimes we can come to a right conclusion on a doctrine or a teaching, but the method of how we came to that right conclusion is horrifically sloppy. It's just bad exegesis, critical examination of a text. It's, it's just bad. But we have a right conclusion. It's kind of like you end up to your destination by accident. You made the right turn, and you're like, oh, we're here. And you didn't even know you were there. It's, it's like you, 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 had a bad you had a bad drive, but thank the Lord, you arrived at the right place nevertheless. What God wants is he wants us to understand when we study. So I am not so much asking us, do we simply know 
the three angels? Do you know how to repeat it well? The question is, do you really understand the first angel? Do you really understand the second angel? Do you really understand the third angel? Can you explain it without your favorite evangelist? Can you explain it without a book that's filled with facts that are amazing? Can you explain it because you know it? That's what God wants from us. You understand that? And so our shallow religion will show up sooner or later if we're not careful. Because if there's one thing that Satan loves to do is he loves to embarrass God's people. And so I'm just encouraging you, don't just assume you know it. Make sure you know it. Really sit down and make sure you know it. Peter says make your calling and election sure, not happenstance. He wants you to be sure about what you believe because when you know what you believe, it affects how you live. When you know what you believe, when you're sure, when you're convinced, when you know it, brothers and sisters, I promise you, it'll affect how you live. It'll even affect single people, yams, you know, many of us. It'll actually affect what guy you choose to let in your life and what you don't. When you really know what you believe, you're going to say like, mm, nah, you know. <laughs> You'll be able to do that, okay? And vice versa for the brothers. So when you really know what you believe, oh man, there's benefits through the roof. I mean, just benefits upon benefits upon benefits upon benefits. So what we're going to do is we're just going to examine just a little bit. But don't allow this to be your study of the three angels. Just let it be a snapshot, something that's a little motivational. The way I look at it, sermons are designed to inspire the mind to go study more. To me, that's what a sermon does. It is simply to inspire the mind to say, man, I was so blessed by what I heard today. I'm going back home and I'm going to dive into these three angels. I'm going to know it for sure. That's what I'm hoping the sermon will do. Amen. All right. So when we look at the first angel's message, we saw something very clear. It's something that rings. It's something that gives reason for the council. Because what was verse seven of Revelation 14? You can actually turn your Bible there because we're going to spend a little bit of time in it. If you look at Revelation 14 and verse seven. It said, saying, fear God, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him. And then it tells us why it says for the hour of his judgment is come. The term is come means it's here right now. It's not is coming. It, it's come. It's here. That's what the term means in the Greek. It means it's here. So there's a judgment that's going on wait a minute, that means that this judgment is going on before the second coming. Because we saw the second coming all the way down in verses 14 and 15. We're here in verse 7 and we're seeing that the judgment's already here. So the Bible teaches that there is something called a pre-advent judgment. The Bible teaches that. And in that judgment, the question is, what is God doing? He's doing an investigative judgment. He's looking at yours and my heart. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7 says... God does not look at people as man looks, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks, judges the heart. And so God is not going to look merely at what we did externally. Oh, Lord, I fed the homeless. Oh, Lord, I, I visited people. God says, I'm looking at your heart. I'm looking at why you fed the homeless. I'm looking at what was going on in your mind when you fed the homeless. You know, God is really looking deep because he can't have a Lucifer part two. He can't have it. He has to make sure whoever comes in my house, they have to have hearts just like mine. And that's why, to me, no sense in faking Christianity, because all you can do is you can fool men, but you're not going to fool God. And God is really the one that counts. You know, so it's like, why fool you? So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be very real 
with you, you know, and, and you know, I understand places of reserve, but, you know, I know that God, I lay bare before you. Even when I'm clothed, I'm naked before you. So why hide it? So go to God and tell him, Lord, I got an attitude problem. Lord, I find myself that I get angry very quick. Lord, I see myself that I judge people just by the way they look or little things that they do. I'm judging them. I'm concluding who and how they are. And I know that's not like your character. Please help me. Keep it real with God. Go before him. Understand, Lord, there's nothing I can hide from you. This is who I am. I see it. Help me. And the good news is God loves to help us. We're living in a time of judgment, but there's always an instrument that God uses in judgment. Let's go to the book of James chapter two and see what it is. In James two, we learn, we see the instrument that God uses in judgment. This is very important. James chapter two. Now in James, the second chapter, we're going to consider chapter two, verses 10 through 12. Let's see what the Bible says here. Now, it says in James 2, 10 through 12, God is going to judge. What's the instrument? What is the measuring tool of how he judges? Does he say, well, I'm a man and and he's a man, so I'm going to look out more for him than for the ladies? God forbid. God is not going to say this person's black or this person's white or this person's Korean or this person's from another nation. You know what? I like that nation better than this. nation. That's how I'm going to judge. No, God is not like men. Praise his name. The Bible is very clear. God has a standard of judgment that we all fall under red, white, black, yellow, green or anything in between. God makes it clear. This is how I judge. And it's spelled out beautifully in James chapter two, verses 10 through 12. Let's notice what it says. It says. For not I'm sorry, it says for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in how many one point he's guilty of how much. All. Now it says in verse 11, for he that said, what law is he talking about? For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be what? Judged by the law, not of bondage, but of liberty. It is none other than the law of God. Evidently, his Ten Commandments, that's what he quoted from. It is none other than the law of God that God is making very clear. This is my standard of judgment. So when he looks at you and when he looks at me, he's not looking at how many people you fed. He's not looking at how many nice things you did for others. He's not looking at how many times you preached and baptized. He's not looking at how much you did on 3ABN and Amazing Facts television and every place else. God's not looking at any of that. God is saying, I am looking at where is your heart when it comes to being in harmony with my law. And it makes beautiful sense because God is a heart searcher, because God is like, look, all of those who are saved and all of those who end up in the kingdom, God says, I wrote my law on their hearts. So he's expecting to see it there. He's expecting to see that. That's what he wants from his last day people in the judgment. And so one thing we know for sure is that we are judged by the law. That's a fact. In the second angel's message, we saw that there's a warning about Babylon because it made it very clear that uh, Babylon had another issue. Let's see if we can get the clicker. There you go. It was a call. And this was really important, wasn't it? It was a call to come away from both the location and condition of Babylon. Please notice what I said. I said it on purpose. It was not a call just to come away from the location. 
but it was a call to come away from the Babylonian condition. There were many a times, especially in the book of Jeremiah, that God says, my own people are behaving like a harlot. There were times that God said that. So in other words, they were his people. They were in the right place in Jerusalem. They were not in the heathen lands, but they were behaving like heathens. Are you following that? So what does God say about that? Here's what he says. In Genesis 11, let's notice something. Let's go to Genesis, the 11th chapter. Because in the second angel's message, it was a call to come away from both the location as well as the condition of Babylon. So let's see what the Bible says in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, we find the very origin of Babylon. In Genesis 11, we find the very origin of Babylon. It says in Genesis 11 and verse 4, and they said, go to, and they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us do something. What do they want to do? If they, if they succeeded in making a tower that made it up to heaven, what does it say that they were going to make? They said, we were going to make a name for ourselves. You know what that's called? That's called self-exaltation. Are you following that? That was the condition of the people who ultimately set up Babel. The condition of their minds was a self-exalting, self-righteous, self-uplifting mind. And what ended up happening is like what you always see in the Bible. Whatever goes on in the mind is going to come out in your actions. And so it said in verse 4 that this is what they wanted to do. They said, we're going to make a name. Because if we don't do this, it says, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Because they remembered the flood that recently, recently happened. So that's what they wanted to do. Then it says in verse 9. It says in verse 9, therefore is the name of it called Babel. Because the Lord did there confound their language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. The foundation of Babylon is self-righteousness and self-exaltation. That's the foundation of Babylon. So in other words, is it possible to be in the remnant but have the mind of a Babylonian? The answer is yes. And that's why the true call to come out of Babylon is not just a call to come out of a bad location, but it's also to come out of a bad condition. And that condition is the call to God pointing out to us that we are a very self-righteous, self-exalting people, which, by the way, I literally traced rebellion from heaven to earth. It's very deep with every kingdom. It's very deep. The foundation is always the same thing. Pride and self-exaltation. It started in heaven with Lucifer. Sun of the morning, bright morning star. And then what ends up happening? Self-exaltation. I will sit on the side of the kings of the north. I will be like the most high. He's exalting himself. He wants to replace God. He wants to destroy God and take his seat. He ends up going further down. And that's always what happens with self-exaltation. If you lift yourself up, it just makes you have a stronger fall. It's not even worth it. You understand what I'm saying? It's just not even worth it. And here it is that the Bible shows that with every kingdom. You can go through Sodom and Gomorrah, you can go through Egypt, you can go through Babylon. It, 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 you see the same principle, and it's the same thing in the very last moments of Earth's history with the spiritual Babylon. It's foundational to all the abominable behaviors. And so what we should do is not just so much address the abominable behaviors, but address the foundation that's causing it. And that's how you bring about true cure. So this is what's happening with Babylon. Now, what does God say in contrast? Psalm 119. 
Obviously, God wants to counter false righteousness with true righteousness. So what is true righteousness in Psalm 119? If we're truly going to come out of Babylon, then what has to happen is we got to move from the false righteousness to the true. Now, what is true righteousness? Psalm 119, verse 172. In Psalm the 119th division, verse 172, what do we see here? It says, my tongue shall speak of thy word for all thy what? Commandments are what? Righteousness. So even in the second angel's message, Babylon wants to tear us away from God's law. That's all Babylon wants. And what was the instrument that Babylon used to take the people away from God and his law? It's called wine. Remember that second angel's message when it said unto them, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city. Why did Babylon fall? Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, having illicit relationships with others when we should have been faithful to God. Committing fornication. You understand that? So the wine inebriated the mind so that we could be unfaithful to God. Are you following that? That's what Babylon's wine. That's the goal of Babylon's wine, to put something in the mind of the people that can get them to say the grass is greener on the other side away from God. That's what the devil wants through Babylon. Then, of course, we saw the third angel. It was avoiding the mark of the beast and keeping God's commandments. Avoiding the mark of the beast, keeping God's commandments. That's how it concluded. That, verse 12 is part of the third angel. So it warns you, don't get the mark. Watch out for the image or the name of the beast. And then it says, now, here's the patience of the saints. Here are the people that are not caught up with the beast. They are described as patient saints that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So what is the third angel warning us about? It's showing us something very important in Romans 6 and verse 16. This is what I'll be building on next week at the uh, conference they're doing over there at Granite Bay. Romans 6. Romans 6 and verse 16. And we're just going to see a thread. I just want you to see this thread because this thread is very important. We're studying Romans 6. In the third angel's message, it's a serious warning. It warns us not to go with the beast, but to remain faithful and keep the commandments of God. So what does Romans 6 and verse 16 say? It says, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So literally, what's happening with the mark of the beast and the seal of God, by the way, who's the only people that get the seal? We studied that. Who's the only people that get the seal? Simplify it. Who's the only people that get the seal? Sabbath keeping, that's too deep. Not yet. We're not going to go there yet. You're correct, but we got a little bit more before we go there. Because it's possible to at least have an image of Sabbath keeping and be 100% lost. Not get the seal and get the mark. Go to Revelation 7. The answer is right in the text. The answer is right in the text. You're going to see right here, right now, who gets the seal. And this is why I have a policy as a pastor, and I, I will never do it. I, I made this policy way before I became a pastor. I said, I will never. I've watched pastors beg their members to go out into the field to minister. And all it did was create chaos and drama. And in my mind, I said, I will never beg a member to go out into the field. If you don't have a burden for souls, then stay seated. 
I'm not going to beg you to go out into the field. You need to develop a burden so that you can go. Because if you feel forced to go in the field, you might take the attitude with you and discourage the very people you're trying to minister to. And I don't want to do that. So if you don't want to go, I don't force people to go. And here it is that in Revelation 7, I'm just saying we have to keep this in mind in verse 3. In Revelation 7 and verse 3, the Bible says, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, until we have sealed the what? Servants of our God in their foreheads. So the only people that get the seal are people who serve. You see how simple that is? See how simple that was? If you want to know, am I even on the road of eventually getting the seal of God? The answer is very simple. How much are you serving? None. Then you're not on the road. You're not even on the road. But I go to church every Sabbath. That means nothing. Now, this is deep. If you're not serving and, and serving doesn't mean you have to do it after Sabbath, but you got to have something in your life where you're serving. There has to be somewhere that you're serving. It doesn't mean that you have to do it on Sabbath. You might have other plans. That's fine. But is there anywhere in your life that you are serving other people and ministering to others? If you're not ministering to others, brothers and sisters, you're not even on the road to get the seal. Because that's just too clear, plain language, isn't it? Hurt not the earth, neither the tree nor the seas, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their forehead. I don't care how rich you are, how much money you make. It means nothing. It means so nothing. It's like if you don't have time to at least go minister to somebody, then you're just too busy. You're just too busy and you're just going to leave an inheritance for somebody else to collect and get a greater blessing than you had. And that's not the will of God. And so it is that the Bible is very clear. Serving. So when we look at this, avoiding the mark of the beast and keep the commandments of God, it's all about who you're going to serve. Who you're going to serve? Who you're going to bow down to and humble yourself before? Is it Satan and sin or is it God and righteousness? And we learn that God's righteousness is in his law. So once again, only those who keep God's law shall be God's saints in the last days. So what is the connection that we see with all three angels? They all bring us back to God's law. Are you seeing that? Yeah. Right spirit. I, I get it. Right spirit. I have the right mind. Right spirit. I'm good with that. But I want you to see all three angels brings us back to God's law. Do we agree with that? Amen. All three angels. They all deal with the law of God. Now, with this, let's go ahead and let's talk about this a little bit. There's something else that you find in the three angels. This one, you have to look at it a little bit more carefully. In the first angel, it didn't just tell us to fear God, but it also said give something to him. Give what? Give glory to him. Well, did you know what 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says? Let's turn there. In 1 Corinthians 6, like I told you, this is a study we're doing, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Practical. Because it's not enough to just give good spiritual teaching messages. We need that. But we also need very practical messages. This is what always allows the church to be relevant. And I want you to see this. So now we're looking at 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, what does the Bible say there? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you are not your own. 
Why? Verse 20. It says, for you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God. How? In your body and in your spirit or mind, which both belong to God. Not only that, but now let's go to 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. Because again, what we're looking at is we're seeing other ways we can glorify God. You know, sometimes we, people limit glorifying God to hallelujah, amen, and I don't know if I'll ever see that in this church. I, I mean, it'll be a very interesting thing to see, and I'll let you know it's all right. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not here to quell praise as long as it's true biblical praise. You know, running up and down in the pews and all of that and disrupting the whole service, that's not how the Spirit of God leads. <laughs> you know, I'm just making it clear. But if just, just, be, just because you raise your hand and, and you might say hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, there's nothing wrong with that. Did you know there's nothing wrong with that? Did you know that's okay? Amen. Amen. All right, just checking. All right, 1 Corinthians 10, right? 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. Let's notice what the Bible says here. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, the Bible says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to what? The glory of God. So can I glorify God even in how I go about eating and drinking? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Follow that? So what we're also seeing is that there are ways that we can understand my body's not my own. And that's one of the reasons why God tells us things to put in it and not put in it and so on. The context of 1 Corinthians 6 is abstaining from fornication. The context of 1 Corinthians 10 is not eating and drinking anything that will be a stumbling block to your neighbor. That's literally what the context is. But we can take it further because there's other areas in the Bible that talks about actual eating, drinking, and lifestyle habits. What do we learn from that? We must glorify God in our bodies. Is that right? Okay, second angel. Second angel is very interesting. Proverbs 31. Watch this. Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5. The second angel's warning was to avoid the wine of Babylon, which inebriates the mind that causes us to forget God's law. Okay? That was in a spiritual sense. But I want you to see that this also happens in the literal sense. Proverbs 31. In Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5, what does the Bible say? It says... It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor princes strong drink, lest what will happen? They will drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. This is talking about the physical wine. Are you following that? So notice that the physical wine causes us to forget God's law, just like the spiritual wine causes us to forget God's law. And so here it is that what do we see here? Avoid inebriating substances because they cause us to break God's law. And that's a fact. Third angel. Oh my, this is deep. Go to Acts 24. Watch this one. In the third angel's message, we know the third angel's message was telling us some powerful things. Avoid the mark of the beast. Receive the seal of God. Be counted amongst the patient saints. By the way, while you're going to Acts 24, how, like, how are y'all doing with that? Well, let me, let me go ahead and qualify my question. What I'm asking is, 
The Bible makes it very clear who gets the seal. They're called patient saints. They're not just called saints. They're called what? Patient saints. How y'all doing with that? How's your patience? <laughs> Are you finding yourself being more patient, more long-suffering? Or are you finding yourself becoming more short-tempered? Easy to tick off. Easy to get upset. Easy to get agitated. What do you see with that? Man, I battle with these things. I really do. Just grew up a man of war and still trying to overcome it all. And so here it is, God is showing, as we're getting closer and closer to the last days of Earth's history, God is saying, as we get closer and closer to the last days of Earth's history, we should be learning how to be more patient. If you say, look, I got baptized five years ago. Five years later, people should say, man, you're even more patient than five years ago. That's how they know you're growing in Christ. Right? But for some of us, it's like, Man, I'm, I'm finding that I'm becoming less patient. I'm actually becoming more short-tempered. I think in my earlier Adventist years, in my early Christian years, I found myself more on fire and people do all sorts of stuff. And you're like, that's all right, brother. I know you meant well. You know, we, we do, we're ready to forgive everybody. But after we get beat up by the world a little bit and drama and all this other stuff, all of a sudden people do the same things they did five years ago. And now we're like, bro, did you see what you just did? And I, I'm like, we're, we're argumentative. We're ready to go in. That's a, that's a warning. That's God saying, hey, 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 come back to the cross. Come back. You're moving too far away. You see me, but the distance is causing the vision to be skewed. Come back to Calvary. And let's look at somebody who was very long-suffering in the midst of our deepest rebellion. And then it helps sober us. You understand that? So here it is that we know patience is something we struggle with. Can I help you know why patience is something for us to struggle with? Are you ready to see something very deep, 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 deep? Go to Acts 24. In Acts 24, right there in verses 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul is talking to Felix and Drusilla. And here's what he says, speaking about the faith in Christ. Here's what he says. Verse 24. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the what? Faith in Christ, right? We're supposed to have the faith of Christ. And here goes Paul preaching and teaching about faith in Christ. Notice the components that makes up the faith in Christ. It says in verse 25, it says, and as he reasoned of what? Righteousness. What else? temperance or self-control, and then what else? Judgment to come. What ended up happening after Paul did all of that? It says, Felix trembled and answered, go thy way for this time, and when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. The gospel makes people think. And it made Felix think and search his heart, and he said, Paul, I need you to go away. I, we'll, we'll talk later about this. What you just dropped on me right here was very, very deep. Now here it is, we're living in the last moments of verse history. And in the last moments of Earth's history, we're no longer teaching about a judgment to come. We're teaching about a judgment is come. Isn't that right? That's first angel. So we're not living in the time of teaching and preaching the judgment to come. We're living in the time the judgment is come. And what we saw is that the message of righteousness, judgment, but also what else? Temperance is to come. Did you know that temperance is part of the faith in Christ. Did you know that? 
It's not, it's not a nugget. I don't know if you got that. Temperance is not a nugget that you just give for three minutes in a Sabbath church service. Temperance is a part of the faith of Christ. Wow. Now check this out. Second Peter one order. When we look at second Peter one, let's see what the order shows us. Second Peter chapter one. I forewarned you. I told you this is a study today. This is a study. Okay. Second Peter one in second Peter one. Now what we're looking at here is we're watching this ladder of grace. This ladder of grace is literally an experience. And it's an experience that is order. It's in order. Okay? Second Peter 1 and verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these, those promises, you and I might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Verse five, it says, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your what? Faith. So in this ladder of grace, the first thing that God deals to every man and every woman is a measure of what? Faith. And then we add to that faith. What comes next? Virtue. And then we add to that virtue. What comes next? Knowledge. And then we add to our knowledge. What comes next? Temperance. And then we add to temperance what comes next? Patience. Wait a minute. Hold up. Wait a second. This is an order. Are you following that? This is an order. Did we see temperance in that order? Did we see that? Which one comes first, temperance or patience? Temperance. And so I think I know why some of us are battling so badly with being so impatient is because we have not yet understood an intemperate person cannot be a patient saint. So honestly, this is the self-examination. If you're very impatient today, ask yourself the question, where am I in my practice of self-control? And you will find the more intemperate I am, the less patient I can be. The more temperate I become, the more patient I will be. And let not your heart be troubled. The good news is patience and temperance both come from the Holy Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there's no law. So what was the first one? The second one, the fruit, uh, I think it's the third. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. That's patience. That's patience. And then the last thing mentioned, temperance. And God says there's no law, meaning you can have as much of it as you want. Law is put in place partially for limits. That's why we have a speed law that says you can only go but this far and then you got to limit it. Laws are given for limits. When it comes to being loving, joyful, having peace, having long suffering and all these other rest, God says no law against it. You can have as much of it as you want. So God says you and I can be completely temperate, totally temperate. 
God says you can have as much as you want. But remember, it doesn't come by might. It doesn't come by power. Only by my spirit. Can you imagine that right there in the three angels, we can see messages that are dealing with health and temperance. They're right there in those angels' messages. And therefore, if we're going to go into a community and teach the three angels, we should be teaching them health and temperance as well. Because that's a part of the faith of Christ. Are you following that, saints? And I promise you this will make us ever so relevant because watch the last few slides. You see, God's great desire for you and me is very clear. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and that you will be in health. So notice, what does God want us above all things to have? He wants us to have what? Health. That's what God wants you to have. He wants me to have it and he wants them to have it. So away with these thoughts. Well, I guess God wanted me to be sick. No, that's not true. Though sickness abounds, it is not as a result of God's will. An enemy did that. And so God wants us to understand that sickness and disease is not part of his plan, even though it runs rampant throughout our world. But there's a way to fix it. There's a way to overcome it. All we got to do is be willing to trust him. God makes it very clear from the prophetic pen. God says, look, these things might have caught man off guard, but they didn't catch him. God makes it very clear. God says, I knew these things were coming for nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences, diseases. It says in earthquakes in diverse places, all these are the beginning of sorrows. And the word sorrows in the Greek means childbirth. It's the beginning of the, the child pains. And one thing all mothers in the room know, I only know by observation. I'm thankful I don't know by experience. One thing all mothers will agree is when your child's about to be born, the birth pains become more rapid and they become more intense. God says that's how it is with prophetic reality. The more that we get closer to that second coming, that harvest time, we're going to start seeing more rapidity with disease and we're going to start seeing more intensity. Isn't that right? You know, Miss Rochelle Walensky, CDC director, she made a powerful statement about COVID and I thought it was very interesting. It's bad, and it's bad and it's interesting because she made a statement, and this is just a day ago, so this is like super fresh news. And uh, what she said here is she said, you know, <laughs> we know that COVID has killed, at least it's, we're, we're told that COVID has killed uh, 800,000 plus people. We're told that that's what happened, 800,000 plus people. This is the part that we didn't hear a lot about, but this is, this is a very important piece of data. And this came right out of her mouth. And here's what she said. The overwhelming number of deaths, over 75%, occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. At least four comorbidities. People who were unwell to begin with. The deaths that happened for, with people with COVID largely were people who were already going down, unfortunately, okay? That was not how media and people were responding to a lot of this. They were responding very differently. And it, it, it affected society in a myriad of ways. And I did some calculations and I thought to myself, I said, so that means 76%, because she says over 75, so I just took the low number. That means 76% of 800,000 is 608. 608,000 people already had four comorbidities of that number who died. 
but the healthy were treated very interestingly. And when I'm looking at this, I was just looking at this like, wow, this is a serious statistic because for me, I'm not so much caught up in this. What caught me was, what if those 608,000 people were ministered to by people who believed in the first, second, and third angel's message, and we showed them that there's a lifestyle that is better than cure, and it's called prevention. What if we were about our father's business, and rather than pushing pills and drugs all the time, what if we showed people how to change their lifestyles? What if we showed them simple natural remedies? What if we just believed our message and went and did our work? You see, we have to understand, it's these, these people did not die simply because of this. Could it be that some people died because I was not about my father's business? How many lives could I have helped? I know a whole lot to help people. God used me, a very broken instrument, to help people that had cancer no longer have cancer. To help people that had heart disease and no longer have heart disease. To help people that have neurodegenerative diseases and no longer have it. And if you are a physician, that's double responsibility for you as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. You have more than a message of drugs and simple things of that nature. I'm not saying that we don't do drugs. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not saying don't go to hospitals. They are relevant at their times. But we have a bigger message. And you get one amen. Because we're like Israel of old, we still struggle believing. We're just like Israel of old. We struggle believing that God is enough in his plan and his ways. We struggle believing that. And that's why we're in the spiritual mess we're in as a church. It's the exact reason why we're in this trouble. We trust man more than we trust God. Admit it, saints. Admit it. I'm not preaching fanaticism. I'm preaching straight up truth. I guarantee you challenge me on any of it. I am not saying hospitals are irrelevant. I am not saying clinics are irrelevant. I am not saying drugs are irrelevant. They all have their place. But we are a movement that was taught by the greatest physician. And his teaching teaches us lifestyle first, simple natural remedies second. If they don't work or can't supply the need, drug third. That's actually heaven's prescription on how to do it. I challenge me on it. Challenge me on it, saints. And we almost forgot the two and we jump right to the three. And that's not the solution. We're putting band-aids over gushing wounds. It's never going to work. Never. We have a message and our message is thoroughly and deeply practical. It's not just spiritual teachings. We come and God raised us up to show people literally how to live. Let me bring it to a close. The Bible says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities and who healeth all thy diseases. Both are true. Not just one. God has enough power to forgive iniquities in 2022. God has enough power to heal all diseases in 2022. You cannot break the verse. You can't break the verse, family. Don't try to break the verse. If the verse saying that God can forgive all iniquity, we need to also believe that he can heal all diseases, but we have to follow his method. And that's what God gave us. That's what he gave us. Let's bring it to a close here. Look at what Jesus, this is, this is our mission as a church. When we serve our communities, this is our mission as a church. 
Afterward, Jesus finds him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made what? Whole. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto you. That's our work. How about this one? Matthew 9, 22. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made what? Whole from that very hour. Then it says in Acts 4, pass on to the disciples now. It says, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. And what does God want when he comes back during harvest time? Wow. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord. Can you imagine that? Somebody says, Lord, how are you going to do that? Father, how are you going to do that? God says, I'm going to do it the way I've always done it. God says, from the very beginning, I gave my people my plan. Look at all the letters in yellow. They spell God's plan. And I'm telling you, this is what God gave to humanity. He gave it to us. And we might sleep on the efficacy of this, but God doesn't. And don't give yourself too much credit too quick, please. I meet lots of people that say, oh, I keep all the laws of health. And I'm like, chances are you're probably being dishonest with your own heart. You probably don't even realize it. I could spend time with a person just on trust in God. Just on trust in God and show how many people are, don't even trust God. And that alone can bring sickness and disease, let alone the rest of these things. But God gave this to us. And the reason why God gave it to us is because the reason health reform must be mingled with the third angel, brothers and sisters, is because the Bible is too clear. So then, with the mind, I myself serve or obey the law of God but with the flesh, the law of sin. If we're going to really keep God's law, which is the basis of all the first, second, and third angel, we've got to keep our minds in the strongest and healthiest condition possible. And that's going to require a cooperation, not just in spiritual things, but in physical things as well. This is the theme that we will be spending time going over again and again and again over the next several weeks as I get the privilege to preach from this pulpit. It is time, family that we come back to God's biblical blueprint. We are watching people dying, but we don't know what to do. We only know what to recommend, what everybody else is recommending. And I'm not, again, negating that. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but we have something more. And we are very slow in giving the more. I want to make sure that's clear in the event of emails and anything else that says, you made it sound like drugs are bad. I'm like, I'm repeating it over and over again. Drugs have their place. They really do. I'm, I'm, I had heart surgery in 2016. I didn't want nobody to sprinkle no herb on my chest. I needed drugs. <laughs> Are you following? So I'm not anti-drug. The Seventh-day Adventist church is not anti-drug. The medical missionary work is not anti-drug. We just put it in its right place on the shelf. That's all. But it is the neglecting the, 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 I can call it the sinful neglecting of the other parts. This is where our father is not pleased. And we have a lot more to give these people that are sick and hurting all around us. And our message must become practical. And it is a part of the third angel's message to teach health and temperance while we give these deep spiritual truths as well. And my prayer, my question is how many of us got it today? If you got it, if you understand that today, could I see your hand, please? If you understand that, are we willing to cooperate with God, family? Seriously. I'm going to ask you to please stand to your feet with me. Let's have a word of prayer. Let's close out. Thank the Lord for the time in which we have spent. And may God be glorified.
May God be glorified. Our loving Father, we cannot thank you enough for teaching us the divine connection between health reform and the third angel, its practicality, and how it really allows us to demonstrate the power of God to help people in their desperate times of need. We're living in a pandemic right now, and there's still many other diseases that are not being discussed that are plaguing the land. But Lord, you have given us something in your words that can help us. And Father, to a large degree, we have neglected these things, but by your grace, no longer. By your grace, Father, it'll be a different time and a different place. 2022 will be a year to remember because your name will be more glorified than in recent years past. Please, Lord, enable us. Give us your spirit. We can't do it without you. And I pray that the love of Jesus will saturate every effort. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name that everyone say, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.